art is a way, I think, of taking the human world and restoring it to a bigger reality. Welcome to Infinite Conversations, a podcast about art and life. My name is Marco Vimarelli, and my guest in this episode is the author and filmmaker J.F. Martel. We're talking about his latest essay, titled Consciousness in the Aesthetic Imagination, which we just posted in our new online journal, Metapsychosis. I've been thinking about some of JF's ideas since I first encountered his work about a year ago in the web magazine Reality Sandwich, where he published an essay that rang like a bell for me called Beauty Will Save the World. Later, I studied his book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, a treatise, critique, and manifesto, which I highly recommend, published by North Atlantic Books. Then a few months ago, we got to meet in person at an event in Boulder called Art Party, hosted by Stuart Davis, where JF was a featured guest and I performed a poem called The War of Art. So we're into art, but what does art really mean? What is art really? What does it do and how does it work? More to the point, what can art mean in a world deluged by what JF calls artifice, which we experience all the time and the ubiquity of marketing, design, ideology, propaganda, clickbait, and the news. What is the power of art to affect us and shock us out of whatever consensus trance we happen to be in? What are we really concerned with when we make or experience art? This is a very special talk for me because the purpose of art is central to my whole project. The podcast, the journal, the book club, and the platform we're building called A Theory of Everybody. The core question is, how can art reimagine the world? So I hope you enjoy this talk and that you'll check out JF's latest essay on metapsychosis.com and join the conversation. You can sign up for free on our forum at infiniteconversations.com and dive in. Ready? Here we go. All right, sorry. That's cool. Gave me a chance to look at the artwork that you uh, put in the folder to include with your piece. I wanted to look at the Vermeer piece specifically because I was just reading about it in your paper uh, that uh, you submitted to Metapsychosis Journal. The paper is called Consciousness in the Aesthetic Imagination. And it's related to your book, Reclaiming Art uh, in the Age of artifice and so like you know i just read it and was mulling it over and uh, wanted to look at the vermeer painting because yeah you talk about these three rifts that you discern in in the painting or that you know you are i think uh building on scholarship uh on you know what makes a work of art more than just a kind of intellectual curiosity like what actually makes it still a vibrant and living you know, being uh, in the world. So I thought maybe we could start the conversation just by talking about, you know, what um, we can use this painting as an example. Uh, like what, what are these rifts of art and how is art, how is art a rift, you know, in our experience and in the world? Well, the rift is an idea that I, I try to develop in, uh, in reclaiming art in the age of artifice. And I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a short chapter and it's a short part of the chapter, but the idea is to, to try to point to one of the factors that make a work of art more than just a representation of uh, objects in the human world. Like it tries to get us outside the, 
just the world of mental representations, the world of utility, the world of useful objects, uh, you know. Like everyday life, default us, mode consciousness. Exactly. To get us out of that and into uh, kind of a, to a deeper stratum of the real. So one of the things I've noticed studying art and, and practicing it and stuff, when I look at a, a really, really great work of art, um, it, there's always something about it that uh, distinguishes it from other works that are kind of, there's always an imperfection in it or something that's a little off, you know, and you see this in sculpture. There's just something about it that would make this an impossible posture in a real human being, but that really makes the humanity of the posture kind of spring out at you when it's done in this kind of awkward, imperfect way. And uh, often in films, when you, when you really study a film, you'll notice all these continuity errors that are necessary for the film to work at the level that it works at. So I call these little imperfections or flourishes or kind of like uh, gaps of logic or the little things that make a work of art different or singular, I call those rifts. And um, they're what distinguish uh, great works of art that I call classics. And I just don't, I, when I say class, it's a dangerous term because I, I don't mean just the classics. In fact, probably a lot of things called classics are probably maybe not that great or not that revelatory compared to... You mean it like, like just technically, objectively, a classic by some like criteria that transcends like just cultural I, I mean it literally, that it's something that, that transcends a class and belongs in its own class, creates its own class. It's like Walter Benjamin said, you can't, you know, you can't revolutionize a genre without reinventing a genre. So, so a classic is literally a work of art that does not belong to the class from which it historically emerged, but creates its own class. And uh, it's, it's like a, a kind of play on words, I guess, because, uh, yeah, in that mm -hmm. sense. So, like, like it's emergent. Yeah. Like it's, it's, not, it's not representative of a type. Exactly. Like, uh, but by virtue of being so, it also creates a rift in our normal experience of reality. Exactly. Uh, and that rift reveals, as I'm understanding your piece, what you call the real. Yeah, it, it's the, the rift in the work makes the work itself a rift which opens a rift in our minds when we encounter it. And through the rift, we perceive for just the second we perceive the real. And uh, it's funny because on the other hand, like the real is what we inhabit all the time. We're always in the real. The real is just the world as it is. But we're constantly projecting our own uh, opinions, concepts onto that world. And then we're, we kind of inhabit a kind of projection or virtual reality uh, that, that, that we create in order to hide you know, the real, because the real is scary. And um, we want to live in a world that's homey, comf comfortable, that's, that, that aligns with our intentions and our plans. Whereas, of course, we're on a, you know, we're on this tiny speck of dust flying at thousands of miles per hour across the, the universe. We can't be in touch with that, that objective reality every moment or else we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to get much done. But then again, what we do get done and what we do in the everyday also belongs to the real. So it's, it's, it's a tricky concept, but it's like art is a way, I think, of taking the human world and restoring it to a bigger reality. So that it's, not, it's not about obliterating the human world and replacing it with a kind of scientific objective, objective uh, vision or, or a kind of uh, idealist 
Zen-like uh, oneness or anything like that. It's, it's, it literally is about taking the human world and saying this human world is just part of a bigger world, which is itself not inherently human. So that's, that's kind of the weird trick. And that's why you'll have a rift, an, an, a kind of a very weird rift in a work of art that really depicts an everyday scene from bourgeois life in, uh, in the Netherlands, you know, 500 years ago. It's just a normal, typical, mundane scene. But when you look at it, there's something strange about it. And that little strange something about it kind of draws you in and makes you see more than, uh, than just a kind of snapshot of everyday life. It's a snapshot of the real Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, like, the artwork, um, like, it does something with respect to the real. Like, it, and one way I would, you know, might talk about that is that it concretizes it. Uh, but the word concretize, I, I'm taking it from Gene Gebser, who, you know, we read in book club this winter. And I've always thought that the word is too hard, that it, connotes concrete and like something that's very solid whereas that's not exactly the case you know it's because we don't experience anything in a solid way i mean actually i mean you know of course if you smack your head into concrete (laughs) you'll experience that in a solid way but um when like when we're talking about um perceptions or experiences uh there is this discontinuous aspect to them right and and the work of art concretizes an experience like in the sense of it seems like constructing some like n- some kind of like node of mm-hmm. i don't know what to call it exactly i mean but it's some kind of uh see it's a rift and it's an opening but at the same time it it has a con- it's like a constellation right exactly uh, you yeah. used another term Right, it's a constellation of sensations, like colors or sounds or words on a page or on a screen that have you know sound to them and you know a visual you know aspect to the letters. So, I guess uh, what I was trying to get at was that like the way that you use the term "the real" has to be subsumed within your own understanding of, of the term, right? So that it's not becoming like solidified into a philosophical concept, but is itself be like part of the flux that you can play with as as a philosopher. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right about um, about art concretizing the real in the sense that you know the way I look at it is that our our ordinary modality is one in which we see ourselves as outside of reality, looking into it. So this is when we we concretize our own subjectivity as being transcendent to the world around us so that the world appears to exist outside of us and for us and we, we, we sense a really real barrier between the inside of our minds and the outside world. But uh, in fact, there is this barrier is exactly, is the veil that art lifts. So let's say you're looking at, uh, like the other example I use in it is uh, Van Gogh's sunflower paintings. So. Whereas uh, a technical diagram or technical illustration will just represent the sunflower, a kind of generic specimen that we can then use to identify sunflowers in the world, uh, Van Gogh is just getting the sunflower as a singular, momentary, spontaneous encounter. So in other words, his experience of the sunflower and the sunflower itself constitute a single block 
outside of subjective experience, a single event in the unfolding of the real. And that's what art tries to capture. What it does is it folds your subjective impression of something back into the event so that both exist on, a, on the same plane. Both exist as part of a, what Deleuze calls a, a block of sensation. So that in itself is, is that's the, the kind of node or the kind of concretized moment that is captured and preserved in the work of art. Van Gogh as a subject is gone, he's dead, but the experience, his experience remains as so long as the painting holds together. So that's kind of the idea that art, um, and Deleuze also says art preserves. He says art is the only thing in the world that preserves anything. It's the only way to preserve reality without uh, subsuming it or without losing it in representations or kind of uh, just uh, pictures of, you know? Yeah. I'm, one, I'm thinking about like what's really preserved. So on page one in your paper, you're talking about Samuel Barber's The Dadger for Strings. You give that as your first example. And then in the third paragraph, you say that genuine art isn't representational, but demonstrational and imitative. It is deeply implicated in the experiential dimension, all that we associate with consciousness. But whereas in most contexts we approach consciousness discursively from an assumed outside perspective, works of art catch it from within, in medias res. What art gives us is consciousness in action, not consciousness of the world, but consciousness in the world. And then um, here on the next page, under the picture of Van Gogh's uh, sunflowers, you're talking about this difference between representation, which captures an abstract kind of, you know, sunflower in general, uh, and art, which captures the uniqueness of this particular sunflower, right? But it captures it and it preserves it, like you're saying, like in something which itself becomes its own uniqueness. Yeah. Right? Uh, and that's the interesting thing. It's like that yeah. sunflower, if there was a sunflower, I mean, whatever it, whatever that was that you know, Van Gogh may have based you know his work on, like that will be completely gone, uh, you know, rotting, returned to dirt. Uh, but the picture itself is with us. Uh, what's interesting though is, in the picture, it get, gets reproduced. It's be, it's something unique which becomes very uh, repetitive. You know, it's such an iconic picture. And so, you know, if we begin to treat the work of art as um, not, a, not a portal, not a node, but like another just representation, you know, then we actually lose what's being, we lose a relationship to what's being preserved, yeah. right? And, and that kind of gets into then your distinction in your book, Reclaiming Art, between art and artifice. Yeah. Because a work of art could be a portal. It could be a living, you know, rift. Uh, but it could also be uh, just an abstracting kind of generalization that, uh, that, stands, between you, that stands between you yeah. and the real. Uh, depending on how it's really, you know, deployed in, in your experience. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your, your book and the basic premise of well, it. Well, in this, in this particular context, there's a... There's a part in the book where I talk about um, the power to be affected. Like, we live in a world, and this kind of can give us a nice entry point maybe into it. Uh, uh, the, we're so bombarded with images today, with uh, advertisements, um, 
you know, messages of all sorts, uh, designed, you know, constructs, commodities, whatever. We're so bombarded that we learn very quickly to numb ourselves so that we're not completely, like if we cried at every commercial we saw, we'd be just like an emotional wreck. Or if we were deeply affected by every representation of a, a field of flowers we saw on billboards, you know, we, 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 we learn to ignore uh, the content of these images, even though they work on us unconsciously, uh, or else if they didn't, then advertising would not exist. Um, they work on us unconsciously, but we learn to numb ourselves to them at the conscious level. So we're just kind of working through the world, and then we're not even aware that we're falling for these advertisements and we're buying these products for reasons we have no say in whatsoever. We just kind of go along. But uh, we're, we're not being affected consciously by, but we, we, we try not to be. So it's very hard in a society like that to weep at the sight of Van Gogh sunflowers, which you're seeing for the thousandth time on some bathroom wall, you know, <laughs> like uh, it's, but I had a, a particular experience with a Van Gogh actually where my, uh, my mom went to France a few years ago and she, she, when she came back, she brought me, she went to the asylum where Van Gogh was interned, where he spent his, some of his final days. And uh, she gave me a coffee mug that she got at the asylum, the former asylum, a coffee mug with the final painting, the only painting he ever sold, I believe, which was the final one, the crows kind of flying out over a cornfield. It's a beautiful painting. And I, I, I've never seen it in the flesh, I've only seen representations in books and online and whatnot. But that time it was on my coffee mug. And when I took the mug out, I, it suddenly hit me. I saw the painting for the first time because it was the last thing I expected to see on this coffee mug was, was his kind of like death painting that he made. And when I saw it on this ridiculous coffee mug, I finally saw it. And, and I, I, I got really emotional. I, I, I kind of felt, and I knew the story behind the painting too, you know, to be fair, but I, I, I felt the full impact of that moment. And I saw those crows flying. And to this day now, I can't see that. I, I use that mug every day and it always kind of, so it took me, I was, I was, I wasn't expecting it. So it affected me, but, and we all have moments like that where suddenly something affects us, a little offense post that's the paint is peeling off in a weird way or a, a flock of birds just taken off suddenly as we take a walk or, or something, a movie we see that just, you know, just goes through our defenses and gets us for somehow. So, so this, it's, um, it's, a, it's really sad that we've lost this power to be affected. I find when I read letters of people, you know, written by people in the 19th or 18th century, I can't believe how much these people felt, you know, how much they allowed themselves to feel emotions and how they expressed this, these emotions. I find that um, I think it was partially deliberate to numb us like this. I think it's in the, some... You know, so their vested interest in this. And I think that um, we have everything to gain by uh, reclaiming our power to be affected and not seeing, you know, we tend to see um, affection as a kind of like, if you're affected by something, you're, you're a sucker, you've fallen for it. You, if you're too impressed by a work of art, you, you're, just, you're just being manipulated by the artist or you're falling for it. And there's this, this kind of cynical pride in not being affected by anything. And I think that's, it's less so now than it was maybe 10 years ago. I'm feeling a shift at that level. But in a way, that, that's, what, that's what stops us from being able to experience not only works of art, but the world itself, the earth, this world, you know, as for, for all that it has. 
to experience it directly, we're, we're, we lose that capacity if we're not willing to be affected by other things, if we just stay castellated in our little egos and pr- protect ourselves from everything. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's what, you know, and that, those images we're bombarded with that I was talking about earlier, that's what I call in the book what I call artifice, which is not art, but very, it is, in a sense, it is art. It's aesthetic construct. Uh, that are designed to affect us in very specific ways. And, you know, this stuff has always existed. You can think of the, the severed heads lining the road leading up to a castle or the, uh, the, bre- you know, the bread and games of the Romans or the Chateau of Versailles in France, which was designed, these things were designed to impress, to, 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 to be shows of power and all that. But um, today with modern media, it's proliferated, so... We're, we're constantly bombarded with aesthetic forces designed to manipulate us. And these are, I, I claim in the book, are, are categorically opposed by, in their nature to works of art, which don't mm-hmm. attempt to manipulate, but tend to open a space of interpretation, a space of freedom. Uh, Martin Heidegger, in one of his essays, I don't remember whether it was um, uh, the question concerning technology or his other famous essay on art uh, makes the, the distinction between uh, techne and poesis, I believe. I haven't read the essay in a, in a while, so I, I may just be kind of mangling his thought here, which would be very unfortunate. That's already mangled. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> nobody will know the difference. <laughs> anyway, but... Um, but techne being, I think, what you talk about as as artifacts. I mean, techne is is craft. Is um, you know, it's like putting something together that's practical, putting something together that work that that works. You know, but it has these ancient origins in, in the crafts and making tools and making you know objects for everyday use. Uh, whereas poesis is uh, something more like what you mean by art. You know, it is kind of arguably the, the wellspring or one of the wellsprings of, of art. It's, a, it's, a, it's the rift um, that you talk about. And, um, you know, it's, I think that, you know, techne is what has kind of evolved into basically this mental, rational world, you know, that, that we uh, um, exist in or where we kind of, it's a, we exist in all the worlds, right? But we locate our identity in, in this particular you know, in this particular plane, right? All these other, you know, all these other dimensions are, are active and they're, you know, they're operative. You know, you're still sensing everything. You're still feeling like something. You're still feeling what's going on uh, and still like is deeply affected and deeply cares. Uh, but because we locate our identity in the mental and because the mental seems to have this predilection for, um abstraction and it doesn't just seem to it does i mean that's uh but you know it it could be it could be many things many you know good things that mental technical consciousness does but at the same time like it um it has to sort of in order to kind of do what it does it sort of has to guard against feeling anything too strongly you know because feeling things disrupts those sort of orders uh, that you establish in, in thought and, you know, agreements that you make about what reality is. And, um, you know, particularly like in a time, I think when we're living, when there's so much pressure, uh, you know, like to, to operate, you know, uh, to get work done, to, you know, to uh, navigate uh, the, the, the economy. Um, brand brand to, yourself. 
Brad, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, yeah. Okay, that's a whole yeah. other um, topic, but uh, it's all it's all related. I mean, partly because this kind of neoliberal, politically speaking, there's I mean, this neoliberal movement of from the '80s, and partly because, at least in the United States, of the breakdown of um, you know a lot of social supports uh, or the, the the conflicts you know around like what. Our society, you know, can provide to help us not be so stressed. Uh, we're in this sort of survivalist mode. We have to use our minds uh, excessively and obsessively, and we have to guard against feeling. And then art comes along and it sensitizes us. Uh, but we could also relate to that art in a way that desensitizes us, right? Like I could sit down and binge on Netflix, you know, for. 10 hours a day for you know a long weekend and i could be kind of entering into this world of aesthetic experience right and i could even be watching some really great awesome tv but i'm actually not experiencing art in in your definition right and then at the same time yeah. i mean i've i'll just mention this one thing it's like i've had the experience of watching like something as mundane and stupid and ridiculous as like a television commercial for you know pharmaceutical drugs and it's just something about the music or something about the the moment i can't you know in the moment i might be able to kind of talk about what it was but a commercial you know it's not not meant to be uh, a profound work of art and then something about it just affects me and i start getting weepy you know i've Maybe that's a hormonal thing, but I think it's not that. I mean, that's just a way of explaining it away. I mean, what it actually is, is that certain ways that we just interface, you know, with reality um, break through or kind of peek through that, 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 those mental encasings that, you know, would keep us from um, the, you know, the experience of, of really being alive. And um, I think that's what, uh, that's what art is really about so yeah. i think that i mean uh, my book is uh is a manifesto so it's it's making a big statement and then uh and then kind of defending it uh, at the same time i i do i do caveat at the end of the chapter that you know you can't just create these two categories art artifice and then put things in bin one or bin two according to some you know theory obviously everything's uh, it's all a lot more complex and subtle than that, but I, I just thought it was a useful way of looking at uh, the aesthetic. And of, uh, but of course, I've been affected by commercials as well. Who 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 hasn't really? I mean, uh, in fact, I, I avoid them because I'm so easily affected by them. But one way that that and also um, there are different levels of work of art. There there are. I think that we need we need to be able to to talk about art like it's something objective. I do believe that's necessary or else we're not talking about anything. So in that case, we need to talk about the, the, the effective power of this or that work of art. We have to recognize that it's not for nothing that Hamlet remains as powerful now as it was 500 years ago. There's something about it. There's something about these Greek tragedies. There's something about uh, Citizen Kane. There's something about these, these works that make them what they are. Um, so we have to look for what is it, this objective thing. But of course, we can't find uh, a recipe because each of these things is a complete singularity. And that's partially exactly what makes them so unique is that they break through their time into this, uh, what Nietzsche called the untimely, you know, not the eternal, but the something that is 
always happening, you know, a kind of, it's a, it's a myth in a sense. It, it attains a level of the mythological or the mythic. Gapser called it the, um, the, the, the time free or the acronym. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's exactly this, it's, it's, the, it's perception or it's consciousness beyond the mental rational mm-hmm. uh, like, and inclusive of uh, what he saw as other uh, structures of consciousness, like the magic and the mythic and uh, and, and all the senses, because all those structures of consciousness, you know, interact with our senses and kind of structure mm-hmm. them, basically structure our, uh, our experience. But but the achronon or the untimely, uh, like that is that is the rift, right? And I guess you know one interesting thing for me about your book was that as a manifesto. Uh, and as this kind of call to action, right? I mean, that's the, the subtitle, a treatise, critique, and call to action. It's really about like how we relate to art, right? All yeah. the art is there, you know? I mean, there's, so, there's more art than we could possibly experience, you know, in, one, in, in many lifetimes. I mean, that's, uh, you know, one of the amazing things about being alive now is that there's just such a profusion of it. You know, and at the same time, there's so much of it that like we see less of it in a in a in a kind of you know perverse sense. And you know, I felt like there's and I don't know, you don't exactly go here in the book, but I felt like there's some like religious dimension to this. Uh, like there's some faith or path, and it's not defined in religious terms exactly. You know, it's not like there's I mean, some people like will refer relate to the canon, what's called the canon, the Western canon, or the classics in its conventional, you know, in the conventional use of that term as being a kind of church, you know, like a church of literature, a church of art. But but the real church of art, you know, doesn't have any walls. And at the same time, like when something is holy, it's holy, you know, and you recognize that like if you're attuned to the spirit and that makes you uh like a member uh of this kind of, you know this timeless or, or time-free uh communion yeah uh, absolutely and it's like i don't i feel like i don't know i feel sometimes i feel very alone in that sort of orientation um and and i think part of it is what you, you've been talking about is like the 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 commodification of art and the way that it's the, the way that like artifice has so colonized our lives, right? You can't turn anywhere without there being some kind of um, design on your being, right? And and I use that word design kind of deliberately there, you know, like it's designed uh, and it has this aesthetic to it, but it also has a design and has like intentionality to it. Uh, and of course, that intentionality is coming from human subjectivity. It's not necessarily just coming, you know, out of the blue. Uh, but uh, but human subjectivity itself is coming out of something. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you kind of like do this recursive uh, kind of loop, you know, into like causes of causes, and you come to you still you, there's still um, a layer of it which is. Um, uh, I find like hostile, like to is actually hostile and actually restrictive uh, to this kind of radical openness of the church, the so the church of art, 
Like, yeah. it, it wants your it wants your faith in like narrower churches, you know. It wants you like in inside of particular channels, particular walls, because you know it's part of it's part of a money system. It's part of political power. And, it always it always ends you know? up reinforcing uh, the mental rational that you're talking about. I mean, that's what artifice. Uh, I mean, if you look at design, uh, I don't want to just. I don't think you do either. We don't want to damn in itself as such. Design is amazing. Design is great. Design is necessary. But there's a lot of design. For example, for example, obsolescence engineering. You know, uh, the designed obsolescence of objects so that they 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 stop functioning after a certain time so that you buy more. Well, that's that's a built-in subjective experience. The the the, the artifice is always predicated on the experience of a subject that is in a world that is separate or isolated from that world that is alienated, right? And that's what Marx talks about: capitalism, capitalism, and alienation. You're you're alienated, you're atomized, you're a little consumer in this big world of commodities, and then you have to do certain things, you have to jump through certain hoops to get certain commodities, and it's kind of this Pac-Man game. And uh, artifice, as such, is always trying to reinforce that feeling of subjectivity and hence also subjection, to be subjected to, you know, to be a subject. You know, there's the subject in the modern mm -hmm. rational philosophical sense, and then there's a subject in the old monarchical sense. You are a subject mm -hmm. of a uh, hegemony or a big, a higher power, and you have to subject yourself to that. And do. So there's always mm -hmm. that, that, that ideology at work in in modern artifice and um that that's exactly what i would argue is absent in in art that it doesn't reinforce a feeling of um uh alienating subjectivity but opens up an intersubjectivity between the work and the viewer and between the author and the viewer through the work but also between the world and the human uh, at a at a deeper level so that that the, the human recognizes itself. You know, Paul Klee said that art teaches us that man is a creature on a star among stars, not the sun at the center of the universe that gives life the shepherd of being, as Heidegger would have put it, not the, the Cartesian ego that, that perceives uh, extension from its own transcendental, transcendental viewpoint or transcendent viewpoint, not the Kantian subject that contains in itself the categories through which the universe comes into being, but the, that the humans, we are bodies and souls in the universe, in a universe that transcends us. So the, this, it's a humbling thing that art does, you know, and, um, and that's very different from what artifice and all this design is trying to do. Uh, in your paper, you, um, uh, you say that aesthetic vision apprehends the entire universe as an imminent field of living forces, all of reality is ensouled, willful, alive. Uh, it is no surprise then that works of art present the world as innately sentient. And, uh, and then you, you go on to talk about panpsychism mm. and this idea that consciousness is everywhere. Like it's not limited to your transcendental viewpoint or your Cartesian yeah. ego or uh, you know, your um, monarchic subject, subjectivity, uh, it's everywhere. And uh, it's, it's interesting because that's a really like non-dual point of view, right? 
Uh, and there is, of course, like a sense of an artist. There's, you don't, just because consciousness is everywhere doesn't mean that you totally lose your sense of centeredness in a, you know, in a, in a body uh, and in a perspective. Uh, but that is not a fixed thing. And that's part of this kind of flux that's, you know, arising and churning and turning over. And part of, I think, like the life of the artist and sort of the life of the the, the faith of art, if you will. Uh, and I want to talk more about this sort of sense of, of art as, as, a, as a religion because mm-hmm. I, I want to, that, that needs like a lot of qualification, just kind of unpacking, like, I don't want to get into trouble with that. But like the, that path has to do, I think, with like letting, letting that flow really move through you and letting yourself be affected by it such that things become intense. Mm-hmm. And then you shape those intensities out of, almost out of necessity, you know, out of like psychic necessity, like into objects that can kind of capture and, and preserve them and, uh, and let you share them with mm-hmm. others, right? Like let you establish a, a, line, of communi- a line of connection, a line of... A line of uh, and, and it's interesting because... I mean, that may be part of this, part of why um, the artwork is like a rift and why it's a singularity. Like it does set things apart, mm-hmm. you know, and it does, I think, you know, I think a lot of artists feel isolated in their, in their work, but it's through their work that they, re, that they reestablish connection. Yeah, uh, and it's like they have uh, to go be outside of the outside of like consensual, conventional, um, you know, reality, and become very alone. Uh, but then, through their work, they can ha- experience this communion, this community, uh, and that's I think one of the that's one of the really beautiful things about it. So anyway, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I think that well, t- I think okay, so. The panpsychism non-dual thing. Yes, I do believe that art points to a kind of non-duality. Uh, however, it's a non-dual. Uh, I don't want to. But it's a, a non-dual multiplicity. It's not a non-dual oneness uh, that you'll find in like Advaita or certain schools of mysticism. It's not like oh, the sunflower is just an appearance to Brahman, and I, my subject, my ego is just an appearance, and it's all just diluted or diffused in this oneness. Um, art makes you feel lonely, you know. Even Buddhist art or, or you know Hindu art, when you go into a temple, you feel small. You feel confronted by this temple, by these statues, by this art. And art makes you feel lonely, and um, uh, and and the loneliness is is. The fact that you are a being on a star among stars, that you're, the non-dualism is not a, a unifying non-dualism, but a seething, teeming multiplicity of objects and beings arising at once, uh, and that you feel the separateness, and the, the unity you feel with the object is, is that you're both separate from one another, and you exist in these lonely, you know, there's this, 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 this sense of singular, everything is singularized, so... I, I think that's important because I, it makes uh, um, it makes art actually not a religion in a traditional or in a traditional sense. And there's different no. kinds of expressions of religion, right? But like there's there's a sense of 
religion that involves kind of enforcing or maintaining like a communality based on a fixation of concepts, right? So a particular worldview or a particular cosmology that is the metaphysics that defines the real, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in the work of art, it could be the sunflower itself is the real. Yeah. Like it's not a stand-in for the real. No. It's not an expression of the real. Uh, it's not Brahman, you know, you know uh, overflowing into uh, samsara, you know, to mix up religions yeah. on that. Yeah. But it's basically like you're, it's, it's this, it's a direct transmission. Yeah. And, and I think that's like the, that's really the, the really interesting part about it. And I think, that, and the part that makes it a multiplicity and not a unity. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, at a certain point, the words become very um, useless, you know, because you have to kind of just go to the work, you know, and talking about it <laughs> do, doesn't really kind of cut it. Talking about it keeps you or kind of brings you back into the, into the mental, rational sphere and into the realm of, you know, of, uh, of religion in its sort of deficient sense, in its sort of because there's, a, there's religion also as art, yeah. right? Like you could, you know, metaphysics is a kind of form, could be a form of art. I mean, it could be a divine form of art. Yeah. But you'd have to relate to it that way, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's, I think, part of like what I think the, your, your book and your work is pointing to is that like we have to become capable of art. Like we're, we're not automatically, you know, artists. No. Uh, we're not automatically know how to appreciate it. And it's not that we can kind of, you know, uh, just learn it. I mean, there, there's like a technical skill. I mean, there's a, a kind of change in our being that has sort of like a conversion like almost, mm. you know, some like turning to wanting to like letting it be, you know? I think there needs to be a problem, you know. You don't do anything... In, in any real meaningful sphere activity, whether it's art or philosophy or science or, 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 uh, or, or hunting, if you're into hunting or, you know, whatever, <laughs> you, there needs to be a problem. We need food. I need to work this out. What is, you know, this problem keeps, keep, this question keeps haunting me philosophically, whatever. There's a need. There needs to be an urgency. And I think that's true about artistic creation, too. There needs to be this urgency to uh, get something right or get through something, and, and that 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 it, that urgency is more than just a kind of like it's not something on your day on your agenda. Okay, oh today at three o'clock I'll have an existential problem and I'll produce a poem. You know, it has to come up at a deeper <laughs> level, and that's the religious. You know, that's that level. You know, what Paul Tillich calls uh, ultimate concern. It has to be a question of ultimate concern. So, want it or not, no matter what your personal beliefs are, you're an atheist, you're uh, you're a Christian, you're a uh, Muslim, whatever. You're you're being motivated by uh, um, that that confrontation with with the radical mystery, with this, and it's manifesting itself through this particular problem. How do I get these? You know, like Cezanne and that you know the that mountain he painted like million times or uh, or um or van gogh has many 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 paint paintings of sunflowers there was something about sunflowers that just got him and he had to get it he had to get that monstrosity that he was seeing onto the canvas he had to you know so there needs to be and that that in itself is not you're in the realm of uh what psychologists call the obsession but what uh you know poets call the inspiration you know <laughs> 
so so you're you're in that religious realm and uh, I do think that there's a um, another thing I wanted to say is that religions are made out of art and this is uh, I think I briefly mentioned this in the book but uh, if you go to a Catholic mass I'm Catholic I grew up Catholic so that's what I'm familiar with you go to a Catholic mass what do you find you find a, a drama there's a you know, some would say it's a very boring drama, but there is a drama. The drama, the passion is reenacted at every mass, the Eucharist. The, there's uh, mm-hmm. architecture, there's sculpture, there's music. There's if you take the art out of the Catholic mass, there's literally nothing left except mm-hmm. dogmatic, you know, judgment. <laughs> you know, and even that, yeah, even profound. that's gone if you see the art first. So, and it's the same with Buddhism, or uh, you know, it, it's. Religions are first and foremost works of art, and then everything happens after that. I, I was surprised when I learned that uh, Salvador Dali had really become devout Catholic, uh, you know, at a certain phase in, in his life. And then I, I kind of just shifted because I grew up Catholic as well, and I, you know, got bored going to church, and I totally, you know, lost interest in in um, Catholicism. But that was one of the things when I when I really, when I thought about like what would be so compelling to you know this great artist that I admired you know in in uh, in this religion that I had you know given up on uh, I I recognized oh it's that it's so richly artistic I mean it, it's so profound you know it's so just overflowing with uh, deeply felt uh, expressions of or you know, artworks based out of ultimate concern. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that is, I mean, that, that is, I think, part of, you know, all religions, uh, because, I mean, just all the effort, the energy it takes to, you know, put together a religion, like, there has to be some really good reason for it. I mean, it's, it, there has to be something holding together. It's not just political control. I mean, it's the no. fact that, you know, that we are, so um, small and that we are, you know, going to die or dying or already dead in some way and that there is an infinite, you know, mystery that uh, confronts us like in just the bare fact of existing and, uh, and, and then we start making art and then we start, um, you know, and then we start concretizing that and then we turn it into uh, an organization, you know, we have profits and so forth but there's still an original prophecy and an original, you know, encounter with that mystery of being, like just in the art itself, yeah. and that's like the, like that's I, that's uh, as I understand your argument, uh, like the source, you know, out of which all these other manifestations take shape. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, uh, I have a, I had a similar experience with Catholicism. I grew up Catholic. I was very devout as a child. And um, then I, uh, I threw it off completely when I was a teenager. But throughout my 20s, I, I, I maintained an interest in the aesthetics of it. And I would often find myself defending it to people who were kind of offhand, you know, like attacking it in pubs and stuff. Um, and then when I was about 30, I, uh, I came back to it, uh, like full on. I just, uh, I, 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 I read some things. And I saw some stuff, and and I was uh, I had access to a church that was very progressive and very different. And I I started going back. Now I've fallen off the wagon again, but I maintain this kind of uh, respect for uh, 
the Catholic tradition, which is, this is very, very strange thing to say today. I mean, it's, it's amazing how I'm French Canadian and in French Canada, the Catholic church is anathema. You can't, there's nobody cares. Like it's, it's been completely thrown uh, to the side. So um, it's, uh, but, but I, I, I can't help it. You know, I see the beauty of it and I see the beauty of the, uh, of the mythology and the poetry and I see the meaning. So yeah. And, and, you know, Dali wasn't the only one. All those decadents, those late 19th century decadents, a bunch of them, like Oscar Wilde. Uh, I can't think of um, uh, Aubrey Beardsley. I think they all went back to Catholicism or went to it. That, that was one of the Oscar Wilde's book. You, you reference it in, uh, in, in um, Reclaiming Art. Uh, not his book. He wrote an essay called The Soul of Man Under, so- Under Socialism. Uh, but it's also an essay about being a Christian. And uh, he, it's been probably 25 years since I, since I read it, but uh, he wrote it when he was in prison. Right? He was imprisoned for, partly for being gay, and, uh, and he wrote this beautiful essay that is really um, kind of this, this fusion of the sort of aestheticism that Wilde is known for with this deep Christianity and, um, and this political uh, vision, you know, of... Uh, of a human family, you know, a human family where I mean, in his book, he imagined a time when, you know, we had technology and robots taking care of like everything. And uh, we could just kind of work, you know, minimally, but we would use our ingenuity to actually create a world that lets us have more, more aesthetic experience, you know, more experience yeah. of, of, of life and it's full, you know, radiance. Yeah. Um, and that was his vision. Uh, and and it and it's it really ties together if you step outside of either of those frames, either the aestheticism, which kind of would reduce things to this art, an art world and to the commodification of art and to the you know just kind of the experience that doesn't have a moral dimension, and, or if you just uh, you know abide in the religious, or if you just abide in the political. Like I think that what the the genius of of wild and of artists that are sui genreist, right? That, like you said, like they create their own class. You know, they transcend conventional no, you know, conventional genre and conventional notions of what art even is. Is that they bring all these dimensions, you know, together, and all the dimensions yeah. are like operative, like in their in their in their work, right? And that's what you started pointing out to circle back in uh, in the Vermeer painting. Is that it's not simply a moralistic uh, allegory, right? It has, uh, it, it, it sort of deconstructs itself, right? By the very uh, intent, thoughtful uh, placement of, of objects and the presence of the painting on the wall and the absence of jewelry in the scales. And, you know, these other things that you point out in your paper, which I would encourage people to read. Um, and, uh, and, and so... Like although it would present itself as a work of art, or it would present itself as a even a religious work of art, uh, when you actually sit with it and experience it and look at it, spend time with it and study it, and talk to people about it, uh, it reveals other aspects of itself that that you know resist being categorized or classified or abstracted into mere concepts. Exactly. Yeah. And there's this uh, this self renewing power in it. That you know, in 200 years, people will get stuff out of Vermeer we can't 
maybe we can't access now. Like there's just, you know, when I was thinking about this talk, we were talking about uh, discussing uh, how can art make actual change in the world? How can art have actual power? And it, it occurred to me, I was trying to think of, I was thinking of Hamlet and going, well, if we took Hamlet out of history, what would have changed? And on, in one sense, we can't really know what exactly would be different. It's not like if we, if we say, oh, if Marx hadn't written Capital, what would have changed? Well, we can actually quantify a lot of things that would have changed, you know, like, well, there wouldn't have been, Lenin wouldn't have come about or, you know, certain things would have taken a drastically different, different form. But if you take Hamlet out, well, what changes? Well, in a sense, nothing. And in a sense, everything, because it, it obviously affected so many people on such a deep level that there's no real way to quantify what it brought to the world. So art works on the, uh, that level of the untimely, that level, the imaginal level, the level that's outside of the sensory motor chain of events that constitutes capital H history. It's, it operates on another level and it, it intervenes into history. Like, uh, and I also thought, okay, well, we don't even know what Hamlet will do in the world because we don't know what Hamlet will become to the generations in the future. Because if it survived this long, there's no, you know, the only thing that could kill Hamlet is uh, the total illiteracy of our culture. And that's, that's being done. You know, there's, there's being made. Um, it, it, a bunch of illiterate people could get Hamlet in the 16th century, in the 17, early 17th. They could watch it and get it. Today, uh, most people, it would just go right through. They wouldn't even understand a single freaking word. And, uh, and that's, that is worrisome. That's not a jab at Hamlet. That's, that's our problem, you know. Um, well, maybe, maybe after the, singu you know, the singularity, when there's some sort of super intelligence, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the AI will, will go back and reread Hamlet and discover all new possibilities it in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's this book uh, called Ilium by, by Dan Simmons, and it's a sci-fi sci book, takes place like 3,000 years in the future. And there's this, um, you know, there's kind of this uh, population of uh, super advanced beings, like, you know, total, like, the nanotechnology, uh, robotic, you know, AI networked, uh, that quantum, you know, quantum computing, I mean, it's all sort of there in the book, he throws it all in there. Uh, but they recreate Homer's Iliad. Uh, and they basically do it as the Olympian gods, like they're on Mars, uh, but they have the powers of the Olympian gods because of their nanotechnology, right? So um, it's 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 cool, uh, and then they and then they have all their you know the same inter the same conflicts as the Olympian gods, and then the book takes place you know between their conflicts and these people left on Earth and so forth. I don't want to get into it. It's a very cool book, um, but. Uh, but yeah, we don't know what Hamlet will do. We don't know what Homer will do. We don't know what Toni Morrison will do or James Baldwin will do or uh, you know, any true artist because, because we don't know what consciousness will do. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and um, you know, it's not the end of the story. And you know, one thing about this idea of art being kind of an incursion, you know, like or an intervention like in conventional reality, um, I really think it is that, uh, and you know that doesn't have to have like a political intention. Like it's something more than political. It's it's something more than moral. It's something more than aesthetic, and but it can include all of those. Uh, Don DeLillo, 
wrote a book called Mao Tu, a uh, novel. And, uh, and partly it's about this reclusive writer who's kind of drawn out into the world again uh, because there's a poet being held by a terrorist group in the Middle East. And, and he, he is, you know, he's called to, uh, to somehow help. And he goes there and ends up kind of meeting his fate. But one of the things he says in the book is that terrorism has like replaced art as being like this force that changes consciousness. And, and the idea of that is that, you know, you have this thing that shocks you, like that shocks everybody, that changes like the, you know, the, the way people feel and think and how societies are organized. Um, and, and in the book he's saying, or he's having the character say, that artist kind of like lost its ability to do that, partly because it's become commodified, right? Uh, it's become basically colonized and absorbed into the order of things. But I think that, I mean, I think that real art and, you know, I don't, what, what do I mean by real exactly? That's another, you know, I think we've talked a bit about that, but it still has to be a force in the world. It, yeah. You know, it still has to be, it still has to kind of shock us. It has to astonish yeah. us, as you, as you put it. Yeah, and uh, I, I agree. I, I think that there's, a, there's an interesting vision of art in Mao Tu, the way you explain it. And it's, uh, it's what Nietzsche called, you know, the Wagnerian vision of art. Art for the masses, art that will change a culture, art that will create a culture or destroy a culture. That, that's the art that the terrorism operates at. Um, but Nietzsche, in the end, um, and he, he kind of wavered, you know, he was a big fan of Wagner, then changed his mind. And he ends up in a place where art works at a, at a much more individual level, that, 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 that the, the work of art... If it, even if it's, if you have a film shown to 2,000 people, it's affecting each person uniquely. It interacts with each person at the level of their own experience, their own memories, their own interpretations. And that's, that would be the difference between, you know, that vision of the art for the masses that will transform the culture and bring about this utopian age. I had long discussions with Daniel Pinchbeck and I was writing the book because he has that vision of art. Uh, and I, I don't, so we had these, these big debate by you know, three emails about that. And um, I, that's what I, I think you're right, that it's apolitical. So uh, that, that type of art, that terrorism type of art, or, you know, that art for the masses vision is very political. And that's the, you know, the Marxists who backed art, backed it on that basis, on that, with that logic in mind. But the other art is apolitical, and that's the art of wild. You know, when art, arts, uh, when wild says art is amoral, the artist is, is free to express anything because what's expressing itself through him will be important to the person, to each person who comes to it. That's a different, that's an apolitical vision, but its political implications are huge because it values uh, individuality, and I don't mean that in the capitalist. I mean individuality—the singularity of a of a soul coming into this world, the singularity of an experience of, of a of a of a consciousness. And I think that um, there's a part where Wilde actually explicitly says this in the the Soul of Man under Socialism, where he says that art is individuality, and individuality is the only thing that's protecting us from the reduction of man to the level of a machine. And uh, mm -hmm. this, is, this is important. Um, and this gets lost in a lot of the consciousness movement. 
we want to get out of individuality, get out of ego, get to this more like we're all together thing. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that the individual was a great discovery of the Western world. We can't just throw it out. We, we, I think we have to deal with it. We have to deal with the fact that we are individuals and that, uh, that art communicates with us at that level, that each of us must interpret it on our terms, in our story, and make sense of it. And if we think that way, that, the political implications of that are huge because it's nonconformist. It's, it's, it, it goes against a lot of the... It, it's it's a kind of immunization against artifice and against type of like just following along with the flock and everything Nietzsche was railing against. So there's, there's something there, you know, it's apolitical, but that makes it very political. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting, actually. Like when I, the idea of, I didn't really pick up on that as much, like the idea of art as a sort of thing that could affect the culture to be a mass, uh, See, Delillo wasn't. I mean, it's inter uh, It's interesting. He was. He was talking about terrorism as being like kind of replaced art as this, uh, this force yes, in culture, yes. right? Um, but in another sense, what is kind of implied by that is like consumerism being a force. You know, because we know that like Beyonce could put out an album, right? Make a whole bunch of videos in secret, and then you know assemble this mass marketing machine to kind of just drop it on the world, you know, and suddenly, boom, everybody's talking about it, and it's on HBO, and, you know, she's making millions of dollars, and, uh, and like, she's getting people talking at the same time, too, because she's putting stuff in there, like uh, New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, and the shooting of uh, black teenagers, and, you know, stuff that makes... Uh, a lot of people feel uncomfortable, you know, because it looks like she's making political statements, uh, and those are statements that might offend their sensibilities, right? Um, and so it's like, I think that, like, that's one example of, like, art on this mass scale, right, where there's actually, like, this real political reality, which is racism, you know, in the United States and America, and it's kind of continued existence in these events that we're seeing and the stratification of society and like all the kind of microaggressions and and the real you know economic injustices and you know prison industrial conflict i mean it goes on and on and on and she's putting that stuff in her art and at the same time she's doing the you know mass commodification you know she's like the the, the you know she she's got a sponsorship with pepsi you know which you know, selling sugar water. Um, and, and so she's totally, you know, in the capitalist world and at the same time transcending it. Uh, and that, that's what I find is like one of the really interesting things, right, is that art and artists, like when they emerge, like out of just being like the pop diva, like this kind of category, this commercial category into being an artist, suddenly it's like you can turn around and then use the machinery of capitalism to... Um, subvert it, you know, uh, if that's what she's doing. I mean, I don't know all the implications of it. And, you know, I think that there's probably arguments to be made on either side. But, you know, I, I, in my perception, like, that's real art. Yeah. You know, that's actually like real art and it's masterful art at that. And so then at the other hand, though, like this way that art works like intimately and quietly, where like an Emily Dickinson poem could have just as much an effect on me as Lemonade, you know, her, um, Beyonce's, 
you know, the latest music video. Um, that's interesting too, you know, and that may be uh, for the sake of my life and my actual experience, like the defining event, you know, that may be what kind of changes everything. Um, so it's very, it's all very mysterious and, and, and beautiful. And what I've, I'm going to let you kind of, you know, say, have your last words, but you know, what I really appreciated about your book is that it sort of is, it, it's articulating, um, I think an understanding of how, how we can relate to art, whether we identify as artists or not, uh, in a way that lets it affect us with its like originary and primordial power, like, and actually lets it change our lives. And I think that's huge. And, and, um, and I think you've articulated it beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's the, the whole question of, um, of using the machine to subvert the machine. And it's, it's a really interesting one and there's no, obviously no easy answer. It's, it's obviously a dangerous game. Um, but maybe it's a game that, you know, I think that there have been artists who've, who've, who've done it and, and won, you know, I think Shakespeare, a lot of his plays had direct political implications with the, the monarchy at the time and everything. I think Kubrick was an example of a filmmaker who kind of, uh, harnessed the machine and used it to create great works of art. Um, and it's, it's, it'd be great to live in a society that, that, you know, gave a place to art so that the machine could serve that, you know, that's kind of uh, Oscar Wilde's dream. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't, I'm going to check out the Beyonce video now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, I myself am not uh, imagining that, 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 that I'll ever get that great at using the machine. Uh, so I'm, I, that's even though that, that I'm, even though I'm praising that and I'm kind of marveling at, you know, how, uh, Beyonce's done that or um, Prince or David Bowie yeah. you know two figures that are like you know really present like in, in our awareness uh, at this time um, or Kubrick or Shakespeare uh, like my own strategy is more to withdraw from the machine as much as possible and start to create new ways of doing things I hope at least in like my 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 small context and i think actually that's the future you know i think that actually kind of in the long run the game of cap of consumption and uh it's kind of like mindless like repetition of um you know just kind of commercial culture um it just becomes boring you know and and it, and you and you start to put the connect the dots, and you realize that it's actually just part of this huge machine of extraction that is uh, trying to maximize its uh, hold on your time, attention, money, and ultimately, in some demonic, some real demonic sense, like your soul. Yeah. And to free your soul, you have to kind of free yourself you know, from your dependence on uh, and your implication in those all that you know, that matrix of relationships, but that's not, but that's, I don't know, that's for not easy to do. I mean, that, we, I don't think, I don't know anybody who's really done that material. No, speaking. neither do I. You, know, you gotta start, you gotta start, you know, in the interiors and start on subtle levels and start in your relationships and start in your day-to-day life. And, you know, I think then we could start working on actually like materially changing, you know. Uh, yeah, something needs to happen. 
whether it's going to be done for us or whether we're going to be the architects of it is remains to be to be seen we, we don't we don't know how it, what shape it'll take um but it's becoming it's becoming pretty obvious that that it's coming apart you know and uh as an artist as a, someone who thinks about you know i it's it's a tricky time to be in because it's really hard to navigate the landscape or to, to place yourself you know we all have to promote ourselves on social media we all have to do all this work that ultimately just takes time away from creating um and 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 it's it's a it's a tricky time but you know there's that chinese curse you know may you live in interesting times yeah mm-hmm. well i think we we're, we're all cursed <laughs> we're living in very very interesting times well uh i'm happy to be alive at least today Infinite Conversations is a project of A Theory of Everybody, a platform for social poetics and planetary thought. In addition to this podcast and podcast network, we're also working on a number of other projects, including an online journal of consciousness and culture called Metapsychosis, an unusually hardcore book club called Lit Geeks, and a discussion hub tying these all together at infiniteconversations.com, where you can join the conversation. We offer all this freely in the spirit of the gift, and you can learn more and support our work at theoryofeverybody.com. Once again, this is Marco Vimarelli. Thanks for listening.